Some of you know that I grew up in Portland, Oregon, in a part of the state known as the Willamette Valley. It is a piece of land that lies between the Cascade Mountains and the coastal range and runs the length of the state from north to south. I have often heard people comment who have been out there, oh, it's so beautiful. And then they say, it's so green. There is a reason that it is so green. You see, it rains in the Willamette Valley, especially the north to mid section of the valley. It rains a lot there. Not just an occasional rain, not just a drizzle, but uh, often, about eight and a half months, to be exact, of gray, overcast, and drizzle. The joke in Portland has always been something about the easy job of being a meteorologist in the Portland metro area. There are only two forecasts. Either it's going to rain or it's raining. If you can see Mount Hood, it's going to rain. If you can't see Mount Hood, it's raining. How hard is that? People who know about this will ask me if they know that I grew up there, well, how on earth did you live there? It's all I knew. It's, it's all I knew. But I, I do remember as I got older traveling to central eastern Oregon, out of the state, thinking, wow, it's not raining here. There's, there's sun in this place. And then, of course, having lived away from Portland all of my adult life, I understand that question, how could you live there? Because I wouldn't want to go back to it few days of Portland weather, and I would be longing for the sunshine. And about now, you're wondering, what does Portland weather have to do with our sermon this morning, for which I wouldn't blame you if you are wondering that. This will sound a bit odd, but these thoughts came to me earlier in the week as it's kind of become this spiritual analogy for me, spiritual analogy in that And it happened as I was reading through Hebrews, one of our books this week, part of our 40-day reading adventure, uh, specifically the section that refers to God's discipline upon his children. Let Let me explain. The letter we know, at least it appears that it was written to Jews who had put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, and they were living likely somewhere in the Roman Empire. Perhaps they had originally been in Italy because the writer of Hebrews includes greetings from their friends in Italy. And the writer's concern for those who are receiving this letter is that they are facing persecution. Not unusual for Christians in the Roman Empire to be facing persecution. And yet these folks are probably Jews that have converted to become followers of Jesus because of the extensive Old Testament imagery 
that is packed into the book of Hebrews. And nobody's going to get that in a letter apart from those who grew up knowing that. And what seems to be a possibility is that these folks are, are being attracted to the possibility of identifying themselves as Jews rather than as followers of Jesus because Judaism was recognized as certainly a lesser religion but an acceptable religion in the Roman Empire. Therefore, Jews were not persecuted, certainly not to the extent that those who claimed the name of this Jesus. And so there was a possibility as a Jew to just honestly identify oneself as a Jew and not as a follower of Jesus. What would you do? Be tempting, wouldn't it? If you spend any of the time reading materials from Voice of the Martyrs, if you get their publication, if you go on their website, you'll encounter stories of the followers of Jesus all around the world who are persecuted and threatened with death. And for many of them, particularly those who find themselves persecuted in Muslim countries, it is as simple as saying, I am a Muslim or I worship Allah. And they are saved. What would you do? What would you do? You know what the writer of Hebrews says to those folks? He says, don't leave rainy Portland. Sure, there are sunnier, warmer places, but don't leave. Don't forsake the rain for the sunshine. Okay, that's not exactly what the writer says, but, but that's, that's the sense of it. Karen, can we put those verses on the screen? The writer says this, and you read this this week, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured so such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus so that you'll not grow weary and lose heart. Consider Jesus and what he has done. And then the writer of Hebrews follows with a most encouraging word. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Oh, well that's great news. Do I have that to look forward to? Is what's almost implied in those words. Don't worry, it hasn't gotten that bad yet. Great news. Notice that the writer didn't say, let us run from the race. No, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. 
And that race, my friends, at some point, for those who are committed followers of Jesus, at some point, it will include suffering. Whether it is persecution at the hands of others, or whether it's persecution that is brought on in the same way that Satan brought persecution and suffering to Job just because he was someone who followed after God. The point is that to be a follower of Jesus Christ means that if we are living unashamedly, we can expect hard times. I think all hard times come from the fact that we live in a broken world, and then you add to that the layer of spiritual warfare and and it results in hard times. God's people don't necessarily get a ticket out of that. Sometimes those hard times will be clearly recognizable as from the enemy of our souls. Others will be less so. But God is sovereign over the world. And God is sovereign over the affairs of his people. And God uses suffering as he sees fit in the lives of his people. And that is really a hard truth. Because I don't want him to do that. I want him to spare me of suffering. And you want him to spare you of suffering. The truth is, I think I'd rather you suffer than me suffer, and you probably feel the same way. You know, as long as somebody else is suffering, not me. But Paul wrote to Timothy that, you know, all of those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted, will suffer. And as I said probably way too many times for you as followers of Jesus in this country, it occurred to me this week we tend to look upon hard times as a bad thing. Our brand, if I can say it that way, our brand of Christianity is largely influenced by, by living in a land of just great abundance and, and, and amazing freedom and, and, and fabulous personal rights, all of those things, just incredible blessings. But, but the result of that can be that we do not see challenging, difficult circumstances as good in terms of what they ultimately achieve. Rather, we, we view them as problems to be fixed or eliminated or problems to be prayed away. The writer of the letter of Hebrews does not see it that way at all. In fact, his or her perspective is rather troubling if we are, are honest. And our text this morning is from Hebrews 12. We read just a little bit of it. Follows Hebrews chapter 11. I know that's deeply profound. 12 follows 11. But you might recall that this summer we spent some time marching through Hebrews 11. And, and Karen picked up that text this morning in her introduction when, when she mentioned all of those who come at the end of chapter 11 There's a listing, some are named, some are not. Folks whose lives were filled with amazing things that God did. And others, their lives ended in great suffering and death. And the writer of Hebrews concluded chapter 11 with these words. These, all of these folks, the named and the unnamed, 
These were all commended for their faith, and yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. He's speaking into the, to, to the lives of those who, who live in the era of following Christ's death and resurrection. We learned that something better for us that God had planned was the sacrifice of his son, Jesus, for everyone's salvation, both those in the Old Testament and those in the new followers of Jesus, eliminating the need to earn salvation, which is impossible, and instead accepting by faith, which meant and still does putting our hope, our belief, our confidence, our trust in God doing what he says he will do if we embrace what he says about us being sinful, needing a savior, and our sins can only be atoned for by the death of his son on the cross. That opens the door to salvation. Okay, so he ends chapter 11 talking about all these who were committed for their faith, yet they didn't receive what was promised so that they together with us could experience something that God had planned that was better. Let's stand and read our text. It follows immediately after that. Here we go. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says... My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. My sisters and my brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated.
Wow. Something better for us in Christ. And then what follows? Karen, can we put our next slide up? Endure hardship is discipline. The writer of Hebrews says, God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? Talk to your neighbor about these two questions. What is your initial response feeling to this statement? You can be honest. You're among friends. And then what does it imply about God? See what your neighbor thinks. Just take a couple of minutes. Okay, we ready to talk about it for a minute? What do you think? How does it strike you? Security. Ah, excellent. Good, good security. Yeah, leads us to trust him to do what is right. What else? What else? Other comments? There was a lot of talking going on here. Let's go. Come on, come on. What do you think? Exactly, Jill. (laughs) In the present. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, so you love me? (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. Good, good. Good, honest expression. Thank you. What else? Yes, that is true. That is true. Ah, interesting. Perhaps one of those statements that Hebrews is full of that causes you to stop and go, whoa, wait a minute, I better do a little self-examination here. You know? How am I responding to this circumstance? What do I, what do I think about this or that? And, and what does that reflect about my heart's condition? Yeah. Good observation. Good observation. Yeah. What else? Yes. And, and, and I, oh, yeah, go ahead. In a house of what? Ah, so there's, you're, you're thinking there's some eternal perspective here, which I think that writer of Hebrews definitely has in mind, Gary. Good. Good, good. And the word that, that the writer uses here is the word that is, is most regularly used throughout the New Testament in, and in other literature of this time period for the, the training of a child, the nurturing of a child, the, the development, the building of character in, in a child. So, good observation. Anything else? And, and I don't tend to think like that. I don't, I don't know about you. You, you probably do, Rachel. <laughs> I love it. Good, good. Good stuff. Good observations. One, yeah. I don't think there's any consequence in this text. Often, that's how, that's how we respond to it. And, uh, you know, I think, remember again, these are, these are folks that are, as far as we know, they're folks who have made a profession of faith and they're following Christ. They're, they're living under what is increasing persecution. You know, somebody's turning up the thermostat. And so they're thinking in terms of, well, gosh, how could my life be easier? The writer of Hebrews wants them to know that, that God hasn't called you to an easy life. God has called you to a life of following after Christ. And, and that sets you up to, to be in you know, situations where you're going to be persecuted and there's going to be suffering. And, and, and this writer definitely has in mind, you know, 
absolute physical persecution and physical suffering. And, and I even wondered at some point in this week, I thought, I'm not even sure that this text is really good for us. Because this is not where we live our lives for the most part. But yet, we can learn from brothers and sisters in the world who are living with this reality just as these Hebrew Christians were because it could be that that is going to become more and more of our reality. I'm looking at the clock thinking, i got to shut up. So, let me just say a couple of quick things. The overwhelming sentiment in this text is that, as, as I read it, I think the language is communicating a God who, as Jim has said, is attentive. A God who is a good father. And a good father disciplines his son and his, his, his daughter because undisciplined children become adult disasters. They're, they're spoiled, toddler-like personalities in adult bodies, and that's not good for the spread of the good news. And that's what the writer is concerned about. Here's... Here's where my rainy day Portland spiritual analogy became most meaningful to me. And maybe it will for you too. If you've ever lived in a predominantly sunny climate like Colorado, and then you go spend time in a soggy place like Portland or the Indonesian jungle, it creates an incredible longing in your heart for sunshine. If it's not what you've known, then you'd really, you just, it's, it's, it's all you know. But I left Portland, and when I go back and it's raining, I'm thinking, why do folks live here when they could live elsewhere in sunny, warm places? And when I read the stories of our brothers and sisters around the world who are persecuted and suffering for Jesus, here's what I'm blown away by, and you will be too if you're willing to engage and to read the literature and, and find out more. They speak of a desire for the scriptures. They have such a hunger for God's word. Actual copies of his word that they can, that they can read. I'm, I'm blown away by the way they talk of knowing God's nearness in times of imprisonment and torture. For pity's sake, I get a cold for a few days in a row and I wonder about God's love. What is wrong with me? I am blown away by these folks. They speak of his nearness in, in those difficult times. They, they long for and they speak about the promise and the bliss of heaven for themselves and their loved ones. You heard the woman on the video this morning. She pictures her husband and her son and her daughter dancing and worshiping in the presence of God. If we don't believe that there is some kind of an afterlife that God is going to reward us with for faithfulness to his name, then we might as well just chuck it and do what we want to do. Powerful stuff. And if you'll spend time getting to know some of those folks as best you can via the media, it's amazing. Now, I say that to say this. Don't think that I'm exalting the suffering saints as perfect people. I am not. They are not perfect people, but it seems to me that out of the suffering, they know something more than many of us know about the goodness of our Father. They have a clarity sometimes that, that I think we can lack about what is really important in life. They seem to grasp in a way that, that can often elude us the seriousness of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and the life-altering consequences 
of that decision. And so when I ask myself, what, what is the difference really? Maybe you've asked that. I, I come back every time. It seems that it's the persecution and the suffering. It's the rain in their life that makes them long for sunshine. And their sunshine is God. Their hope for a beautiful sunny day is grounded in the person of Jesus. We came to the table a few minutes ago and we remembered Jesus. What are we remembering about Jesus when we come to this table? The bread, his body, the cup, his blood. We are remembering brokenness. We are remembering death. Body that was given for us, a cup of blood that was spilled for our forgiveness. Jesus said, when you get together and you do this, remember me. Wow. So, let me just close this morning with something outrageous on this Sunday before Election Day. May I? Are you okay with me being outrageous? This is not an endorsement. This is an outrageous statement. Regardless of who becomes the next president, regardless of how they conduct the affairs of our country, whether we rise to that place of of superpower again that many long for, or, or whether we go down the toilet as many fear, for the people of God, it ultimately does not matter. Doesn't mean that it won't be hard. It doesn't mean that we won't be persecuted. It doesn't mean that people aren't going to hate us because we're followers of that Jesus character. But if we are willing to give our attention to the exhortation of what the writer of Hebrews says here, fix our eyes on him. The whole book is about faith. Our whole faith is about faith. Putting our lives on the line and trusting in something that we believe to be true. In the past, I've, I've said to you that the subjective becomes objective. The further into Christ we press and the further into one another's lives we press in terms of encouragement and support and rallying together as God's people in hard times, the subjectiveness of faith becomes more objective in our lives. I can remember as a young person, there were so many things that I didn't know and understand about who God is and And it caused me to question and to wonder. And now as an old person, I still have a lot of questions and I wonder, but I don't doubt for a minute God's faithfulness because I've seen him be faithful in my life for so long. You can't know this unless you're willing to invest in it and to give yourself to it and to spend time with those who do the same. Brothers and sisters, regardless of what happens in 2017, our God is on his throne. 
And there will be difficult things, perhaps more difficult than any of us has ever seen or experienced, come into our lives. And, and if we are staring the sovereignty of God right in the face, then we have a couple of choices. It seems to me that we either turn from him and disbelieve, or we turn to him and we fix our eyes upon him and we press into him and we cry out, for more of him, and we find ourselves in that place of beginning to understand what brothers and sisters around the world who suffer for Jesus have known for a long time, that in the suffering and in the brokenness, God is perhaps more real than anywhere else in all of life. Praise team, come on up and lead us as we close this morning. That cloud of witnesses that the writer of Hebrews talks about? Thought about that this week. You know, he had in mind the Old Testament folks. And certainly, that is a correct reading of the text. But I can't help but think that for us, as we know about brothers and sisters around the world who suffer for the sake of Jesus, those who have died for the sake of Jesus, those who will die today for the sake of Jesus, they're joining that cloud And they're cheering us on. The language is pretty cool. It's that idea of spectators who have once been a part of the sport have now passed the baton and they're sitting there in the stadium and they're watching the race and they're cheering. They're cheering. Those in the past, those in the present, cheering for those of us who will carry the baton and pursue to the finish the race that lies ahead. Amen.